0: We are joined by Jeff Meyerson, host of Software Engineering Daily, to discuss competition in the software engineer job market. Enjoy. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of Jeff Meyerson joining us. Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Max. So for our audience that are not familiar with Jeff, Jeff runs a extremely successful uh, software engineering podcast similar to ourselves. Although topic wise, you guys cover a huge range, um, and the name of the podcast, Software Engineering Daily, you guys do it daily, uh, Monday Wednesday, Monday through Friday. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, so, for audience that are not familiar with with your podcast, do you mind introing to people a little bit to the types of topics you guys cover and guests you have on?
1: Software Engineering Daily covers most of the. Topics in software engineering that are relevant to the average engineer working in software engineering. So, that ranges from frameworks like Node.js or React.js to cloud products like AWS to newer technologies like blockchain or deep learning. Not that deep learning is new, but the applications of it are newer. Mm-hmm. And we try to approach um, most of those topics in enough in enough depth that people can uh, get some
0: some grounding in the material. Fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I welcome our audience. To go check out your guys's podcast. Uh, if people just Google Software Engineering Daily or uh, check it out on the iTunes uh, podcast search, um, you guys will rank very highly um, for our audience that. Uh, might want a starting point to get into your guys' content. Uh, Besides your guys' website, which has a lot of uh, nice ways for people to browse by topic uh, that they might be interested in, what are some of your favorite episodes that you'd suggest people go check out uh, to get a start with?
1: The most popular episode is uh, called Data Intensive Applications with Martin Kleppman. Martin is a entrepreneur, a computer scientist, and an author, and he explains in great detail how to build data-intensive applications, which many large-scale applications would fall under the rubric of. That episode's great. It, it touches on distributed systems in production, uh, as well as just some explanations for how Martin looks at trade-offs between different types of systems. Uh, other episodes I, I really enjoyed, uh, there's a number of episodes with my, my friend Hasib, uh, who's, um, we both played poker in the past and, uh, have both made our way back to computer science, made our way to computer science. And I've really enjoyed those episodes. Um, yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, it's, it's hard for me to pick out favorites. Um, certainly there are, there are topics that I'm more comfortable with and in the topics that I'm more comfortable with. I think the episodes tend to turn out better. Uh, so yeah.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I know uh, for audience that aren't familiar, your background in poker and your friendship with Hasib. Uh, one of the interesting parallels that I've heard you draw people's attention to is between skills you might obtain uh, in poker and perhaps skills you might need or be valuable in the software engineering job market. Are there any kind of overarching parallels that uh, you'd, you'd like to enlighten our audience about, or um, are, there, are there any parallels?
1: There's something about estimating risk, particularly downside risk and upside potential that gets ironed into you as a poker player that is really important to keep in mind when you're making your career in software engineering because for any given decision and this is true for anybody that spends time in investing probably has has grappled with these ideas uh, trying to find the true balance between what like what is the total balance between the downside risk and the upside potential of a decision that you might be making. Uh, I would say that's the most important thing that poker lends itself to. Um, And there's also actually one other thing um, that Mm -hmm. I've talked to, talked to people about, which is something about um, emotional, emotional resilience, I guess, but, but not, not that, not that poker really puts you through anything that hard, but if if your life is otherwise um, pretty placid, like, you know, I, I grew up with with two great parents and, uh, you know, I had I did never go hungry or anything. So my life was like pretty easy. And so poker was this nice thing that that really put some difficulty, some intellectual and psychological difficulty. Uh, it invoked a little bit of pain on me. I think that was useful.
0: For sure. One of, one of the parallels that your description of the skill set and risk exposure uh, benefits you gained from playing poker makes me think about is in the world of specifically online poker, which is a, in the grand scheme of things, relatively recent innovation, you reach this enormous audience of all humans who have internet access who might play poker uh, and get drawn to the table. Uh, In terms of things outside of your control as a poker player, similarly, things that might be outside of your control as a software engineer is you're kind of at the whims of who comes to the table. Um, Same thing goes for in terms of developing your job skills, like what does the market move to the skill set that you are preparing for? Like if Java is your skill set and you're investing time into learning Java, um, might it you might get the shaft from the market because the market moves on to some other technology. Is that similarly true with poker? Are there ups and downs to how many people come to the table and engage you and, and make it profitable or not profitable to be an online poker player? I'd mostly agree with that. Now the the real shift that's occurred is I think it's
1: getting harder and harder to win if you're just a human, uh, which is a, sh- a shift that I didn't expect back when I was a poker player, but I think the bots are, are starting to destroy the humans. Um, So, I mean, in that sense, you know, there's kind of no recourse as a, as a poker player, you basically have to switch careers. So as you know, maybe in the past you could have just switched games or you could have switched your strategy if something wasn't working, or you could have switched the table. Now you basically have to quit, Playing poker as far as i can tell but i'm not an expert in, in the industry so maybe somebody can can correct me
0: oh for sure myself neither <laughs> my personal experience with poker is limited to in-person uh five dollar <laughs> uh, uh no stakes but you are an op- or, you are or- an options trader right That's correct. That's correct. For the first two years after graduating college, I worked in options market making in Chicago. And that has its Um, own metagame, right? Like you have to jump between different strategies there. Definitely, definitely. And in terms of drawing parallels to software engineering, uh, I had a similar experience to you when it comes to uh, learning from being exposed to risk. Uh, One of the things that I think people... uh, misunderstand about the financial markets is that there's a huge distribution of size of players in the market. And uh, one of the realities in the day-to-day of the markets is that um, a huge amount of money still is exchanged offline and not on the online exchanges that people might be building automated trading strategies against. Um, and even then, a, a big amount of money trades hands in asset classes that are not traded online. Uh, for example, um, there's a great deal of trading that occurs over the phone still, even in the year 2018. <laughs> um, and the reasons behind that are super interesting and it can help ex- explain a lot and form somewhat maybe a software engineer's decision making about how they get involved in finance. But um, I'm sure people involved in Bitcoin speculation, for example, uh, may already be familiar with this, but um, I'm sure there are all kinds of very large transactions that due to the nature of wanting secrecy around transactions, something that Bitcoin solves, uh, transactions will often happen away from public scrutiny so that Maybe a transaction doesn't uh, get revealed to people until uh, <laughs> a more opportune time, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I realize I'm going off on a tangent here, but uh, there's there's a lot of informational games at play in finance that you don't really think about um, in software engineering. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Have you? I, I'm not familiar with whether you've had any guests on yet on Software Engineering Daily that build uh, financial software. I know you've had many episodes about cryptocurrencies. Uh, Are there any parallels there that you recall from speaking with anybody about?
1: Well, we did a show with somebody from Jane Street where they talked about functional programming as it applies to trading. And uh, I used to work at an options trading place. I built a little bit of software there before I left that job. Um, so I have a little bit of experience in that industry. I would like to do more shows because it's a pretty interesting topic with a lot of – there's a lot of depth there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, sorry, were you talking about the cryptocurrency side of things or were you talking about the, the traditional financial trading side of things? Uh, I was talking about the
0: traditional financial side of things where uh, you might have uh, tr- more traditional – Assets that are backed by physical goods. Uh, for example, in Chicago, there's a couple of exchanges: the Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Board of Trade. And Chicago is kind of interesting uh, as a financial capital of the world because so much uh, commodity goods pass through Chicago, the city. It's actually the um, the railroad capital of North America, and so a lot of the assets that are traded in Chicago are actually backed by physical goods, primarily um, uh, food goods like soybeans and corn, uh, but also stuff like lumber. um, And then more abstract financial products like uh, interest rate products that are backed by uh, debt and bonds and such. So when I was mentioning some of the intricacies that exist in finance that you wouldn't think about as a software engineer, uh, a lot of the trading that happens is, is maybe moving off of the floor of a stock exchange, where you see people shouting at each other, um, and not completely over to electronic exchanges, but actually to upstairs offices where people have phone lines, where direct lines with brokers and are still making trades over the phone, surprisingly enough. Um, <laughs> I realize that's a, a sidestep from software engineering and poker, but uh, poker definitely has its parallels. and. Um, I, I definitely got my risk exposure through uh, a trading job in contrast to uh, what might be a more scalable activity like you are doing with online poker. <laughs> but Maybe. like you say, automation is is really brutal. I, I'd be curious. I, I don't know if this is a topic you're super intimately familiar with, but what what is kind of the state of the art when it comes to how people are automating uh, poker bots?
1: Well, there was one show we did about a poker bot called Libratus, which is now dominating Heads Up No Limit Hold'em. And when I played, I thought Heads Up No Limit Hold'em was something that was not going to be approachable for bots. But it turns out it is simple enough to be approachable by bots. So the last thing I looked at was Heads Up No Limit Hold'em, there was, there's this great video on, I think, Wired, uh, and you can just search YouTube for Wired Libratus and see uh, this pair of uh, heads-up, no-limit-hold'em experts getting crushed by Libratus. It's, uh, I don't know, hilarious and a little strange because you know I'm just looking at them like, I used to do that, and now I would just get crushed by a robot.
0: <laughs> we'll, we'll include the link that you mentioned in the show notes. Uh, for our audience that I'm sure a big share of our audience knows how to play poker, but the specifics and the variations of poker are sometimes lost to me. What is heads up no limit uh, oh heads up is heads up is one on one gotcha
1: so in some ways in some ways it's simpler because you don't have to deal with the variables of other players involved um but in in other ways it's more complex because you have a Uh, more rich metagame that will develop between you and the specific opponent that you're
0: playing against. Hmm. Does Labradus take advantage of uh, perhaps history outside of the context of a one-on-one match? Like, do they have a database of Jeff Meyerson uh, games that they (laughs) have on file for when they face up against you, or is it an anonymized data set it might be trained on? I think it's anonymized. Mm. But over the course of many iterations of rounds of poker, it calip- it might personalize in some way against somebody?
1: Yeah, well, I think it works similarly to AlphaGo, where it can even train against previous iterations
0: of itself. Mm. So playing against itself as training data.
1: Yeah, and you just have a reward function for how much money it's making and it can train based based off of that very simple, straightforward reward function.
0: One one of the most interesting dynamics of poker, in my opinion, is this idea of imperfect information and not knowing the cards the other person has. Um, are there variations of poker that you particularly prefer, or think are um, more games of skill versus uh, slot machine esque type of gambling? Well,
1: the imperfect information of poker is actually not that uh sig- I don't see it as that significant because you know the contents of the deck and you know certain cards that have already been exposed so you can form weighted probability distributions about where you know what cards your opponent could be holding, what other cards could come out and granted that is some unexposed information but the range of information that could potentially be exposed is fairly limited um and so in that sense I've, I've kind of gotten to feel like poker is sort of a fake uh imperfect information game because the information scope the the potential scope of possibilities that could be revealed is so limited um mm. that you know you compare it to something like magic um, or dominion uh i feel like those games are are richer variations of essentially the the same thing so for I mean, sure that's I mean, not mag- it's not poker but
0: <laughs> game oh no right. for sure in magic cards when you're playing one-on-one with somebody you you don't even <laughs> you don't even know what cards might exist in their deck in contrast to obviously poker exactly <laughs> yeah you got four colors and or four symbols and thirteen numbers. Uh, exactly. Uh, so what are there any variations of poker that you prefer? I I realize the heads up version you described is one on one. Do you prefer one on one or do you prefer larger I do. larger tables? I do prefer one on one,
1: because hmm. y- y- like you're you're supposed to be disciplined at larger games where there's like six people because you're supposed to wait for good hands. But in one-on-one, if you have a terrible hand, you can just fold it and you instantly move on to the next hand. And otherwise you get to play lots of crappy hands because the relative strength is uh, much lower for the average hand than it would be at a six person table where you would have six hands being dealt rather than two hands being dealt. So I, I love, I used to
0: love, um, heads up poker. That makes a lot of sense. Um, One of the topics that you and I have talked about previous that I'd love to elaborate a little bit more on for our audience are your views on basically the future of the job market in software engineering. I I think both of our uh, podcasts do a good job of uh, showcasing how huge the job market is and how much opportunity there is for people who even just now are getting into software engineering but one of the topics you've had individual episodes about that you've actually published uh, monologue episodes about are about the commoditization of software engineering labor. Uh, So for people who who might not know what that phrase might mean, software engineering labor commoditization, (laughs) do you mind uh, elaborating a little bit for our audience? What I mean by that term is that
1: the ways that job titles can seduce you uh, can trick you into thinking that you have limited potential as an engineer. So for example, if you are hired to do the work of an SDE2, a software development engineer two, you're entering at a specific level, maybe you have some backend Java experience. And so you find this SDE2 role that calls for Java experience, and you you double down on that Java experience, and you compound more Java, more and more Java experience. You know, you move up in the ranks in as as an experienced Java developer, and you start to think of yourself as a Java developer or as a quote back end developer. And um, you know, I think that there has been a countervailing trend against that towards the the rise of the full stack developer which i think is great because full stack developers figure out that their the competency is not limited to some specific language and uh, in some ways that's worse because if you just focus on back end java your entire life you could become the best back end java developer in the world and you could command complete control over your salary. Um, Or even if you're just in the top X percentile, you could command an amazing salary that way. Um, What I like about the full stack notion, the idea of of skating along the the top of a lot of different areas and developing a, a basic competency in a lot of those areas and only going deep when you decide that there is a very good reason for you to go deep on something And even then, you're open to the possibility of moving on to something else and reinventing yourself in the future as a different kind of developer. The reason I like that is because it provides you with immense optionality. And I think, especially at the beginning of a software developer's career, optionality is pretty important. Um, There's certainly alternative paths, like going the apprenticeship route and really focusing on one specific area. If you find a company or a person that you really want to work under and you just want to crush it for whatever that that person that you're or company that you're being a, an apprentice to, uh, you just want to crush it for them because you think that just developing that core competency under that person or company uh, is going to compound in interesting ways. That can be great. Um, but I think many developers early on in their career, they just feel this massive expanse of possibility and they don't really know how to how to conquer it, and I'm not offering a specific way, to, a, a prescriptive way of of conquering it. I'm just I'm suggesting that the avenue of SDE one, SDE two, or some some planning out some sort of linear path in a particular direction, um, and that that commodity term basically setting yourself up to say. I'm going to go from SDE1 at one company to SDE2 at another company rather than building up an extremely differentiated set of skills and marketing yourself as Max the differentiated engineer with a background in options trading and podcasting and finding the place where those skills can intersect in a way that is super differentiated and commands you um you know, unique pricing power over your role or, uh, you know, unique retention capabilities because nobody else or very few other people in the world could potentially do your job. So you get to have a lot of autonomy and, and can make certain demands from your employer. Um, I just think that's a better place to be than commoditizing yourself and making it such that somebody could just swap you out for somebody else.
0: So one of the topics that you've covered on your podcast and that I think many of our shared audience are interested in is basically how to optimize their price in the job market, aka how do how can people earn more? And one of the topics that I've had come up on my podcast pretty often is the issue of how do you build your signal in the job market Um as being competent, so uh, maybe maybe somebody is that SDE one or SDE two, and is the Java uh, on the Java track versus being taking the more uh, the route with more optionality, allowing them to do more things and be full stack. Uh, how do people build up signal in the job market, or how do you think what are what do you think are good strategies for people to build up their signal in the job market to maximize their income?
1: I am not the best person to ask about this because <laughs> I didn't There, there's not a job that I stayed at for a very long period of time and uh, so in terms of appealing to the job market I, it's honestly like <laughs> appealing, trying to appeal to the job market the advice, you know the, the, the better advice would be um, probably well, I mean, there's different ways of going about. it. I mean, when you have very, very smart employers, very smart employers will look for somebody who has gone very deep in a specific topic, um, because that person will be will be very qualified in that direction. And um, you know, if you did, for example, bu- options trading, built you built options trading software for three years at a company, you're gonna have a great shot at getting a job at another options trading company, or if you can find a company that has similar demands, like, I don't know, cryptocurrency trading or something like that, um, that or maybe like building Uber's pricing engine, you know, there'd be some some similarities there. So you can, you know, if you go, have gone deep on one topic, then you can appeal by going deep in, in another topic. Um, but again, I I think this is just something I'm not a, not an expert on because I've never really... I feel like I I've done a bad job of appealing to uh employers. I've done a really bad job at negotiating my salary over time. I've just never been good at that
0: stuff. Totally totally fair. Uh I guess to make it a more specific question for people who haven't held a software engineering job yet, what what how can they Land a first job. Do you recommend credentialing programs that advertise job placement stuff like boot camps, or do you think a, do you think four year bachelors are a good idea? Like, if you if you were if you ha- if you have a child or are going to have a child, what <laughs> what what do, what would you coach people into in the, in a software engineering job track? Practice interview problems.
1: As far as I can tell,
0: mm-hmm. that is the safest thing that
1: you can invest your time in. Get extremely good at. Reversing a linked list, finding all the palindromes in a set of strings and uh, finding the anagrams in a set of strings, doing dynamic programming. That is the stuff that you're going to be tested on. And the other parts of the window dressing exercise of finding a job are not too difficult. Practicing interview problems is the one part of it that actually takes some real work
0: and persistence. Mm. I, so... Both of us having podcasts, I think both of us get a fair amount of inbound interest, whether that's in the form of people wanting to come on as guests or be sponsors or uh, asking uh, advice directly to you or I. Um, In the form of advertising yourself maybe in the job market via your GitHub profile or personal website or blog or Stack Overflow answers or Quora answers, uh, are there any... Are there any signaling methods like that that you think uh, our average software engineer might benefit from in the commoditized job market for software engineers? Unless
1: you are contributing to something like React or Kafka or Bitcoin Core, your open source contributions are unlikely to get you anywhere. That is my experience. That is what I've heard from many other people. I'm sure there's somebody out there who has gotten a job through their own open source projects, um, and as far as getting your foot in the door, that stuff can be helpful. But ultimately, it's not that hard to get your to get your foot in the door at, at any of these places. There's lots of little hacks to to getting your foot in the door. What you
0: really need to be able to do is reverse a string. <laughs> that is, I that is very real and and very sad. <laughs>
1: Actually so, Just so okay. here's, here's sure, something sure. I wanna say I I used to feel a little dismayed by that process too. Over time I've actually gotten more understanding and sympathetic of the programming interview uh process and I, I actually feel like it's a it is a decent way um of a for, for a software engineer to
0: communicate their skill to an interviewer. For sure. I it's kind of like democracy where it's uh right. It's not perfect, but right. it's the best. <laughs> uh one of the things I heard recently in reference to the technical interview process that I find really interesting and Uh, supports your point about it being being a good process or being an understandable process is that I heard somebody argue that it's actually favorable to job candidates, these technical screens, because they're often programming language agnostic, like reversing a string or finding palindromes. And that allows people who might've had their Java role to be able to apply and succeed in interviewing for roles that aren't Java necessarily. So it gives candidates more flexibility in their interview process to demonstrate their programming language agnostic skills or their framework or library agnostic skills due to the nature of the types of questions that technical interviews often cover. Is that fair to say? Do you think that's a, do you think these interviews are, are that favorable for, for um, candidates or. Yeah. I, I think think they're actually fine.
1: Um, And to to expand to a broader point, I was much more cynical about the hiring process and the industry as a whole earlier on in my career before I found an aspect of software engineering that I, I really was able to do well at, which is interviewing people for a software engineering podcast. Until I found that, I just felt very resentful and a little bit alienated by the, the software engineering community. And uh, that's just changed over time. Now I see why things are the way they are in, in many places, which is not a reason uh, to, to avoid change or, or to, uh, you know, if you see a problem, you shouldn't try to fix it. But uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm more sympathetic and uh, I'm a bigger fan of the way that the technology industry works after actually finding a niche that I, that I fit into comfortably.
0: For sure. For sure. I, one of the things I'd like to point out for our audience is that actually you did your undergraduate in computer science, uh, which, um, is in contrast to a lot of the guests that we have on the accidental engineer, but, uh, on the topic of getting formal secondary degrees like a bachelor's, uh, it seems to me like there's a range of jobs, especially in the more selective jobs in data science, for example, that are predicated on you getting a PhD because everyone you'll be conversing with and trying to discuss problems with at, in your role might also have PhDs. Um, have you found in your interviewing of folks for uh, Software Engineering Daily that? that is a common strand, that there's a class of jobs that are only accessible to those who have gone through four to eight year PhD programs?
1: No, I think by and large, that's not the case. There are jobs that it's harder to get your foot in the door if you don't have a PhD, but you have all these examples of people who maybe didn't even go to high school and have trained themselves to be Fluent in mathematics and applied mathematics. Uh, and, you know, I, I know a guy named Vic, Vic Parachuri, who started a company called DataQuest, for example, that teaches data science. And he might have gone to college, I can't remember if he went to college or not, but he is somebody who just trained himself to understand data science because there are people who are self learners out there. And maybe different, maybe certain parts of the industry have been slow to acknowledge that and maybe there are sectors like uh, i don't know maybe certain portions of google it still is impossible to get an interview there if you don't have phd but by and large i'm pretty sure the industry has begun to recognize that there is this large contingent of self-starters that can learn everything that is necessary to apply those phd skills
0: to software engineering Totally. Totally. I, I actually believe I have met Vic in person. He's the founder of DataQuest, like you say, in okay. Boston, I believe, where he, when he worked at oh, Coursera yeah. Yeah, edX, maybe? or That's edX, right. I think edX. Uh, they're located in Cambridge. And I think Vic and I would attend Python meetup group or Python user group meetups in Boston together. We, he and I probably worked... Only a handful of blocks apart from from each other. But crazy, yeah. He, uh, I recall, I think, like you say, gained a lot of his skills around data science by virtue of working at edX um, and having the opportunity of being afforded the opportunity uh, as a software engineer there to kind of self-study up on the topic. And it's, it's really cool to see. I think this was maybe like... Four years ago maybe that um data Quest of his is a, is a pretty recent service offering but uh yeah like you i find these service offerings for people to prepare for uh job interviews maybe as data scientists or software engineers to be oh yeah really compelling stuff and like totally worth the price tag uh, <laughs> like um there's so many variations of this uh And there are many that are obviously free resources. One that I think both of us have had on our podcast respectively Mm -hmm. is interviewing.io and the type of service offering where you literally don't have to study by yourself topics, but you can straight up practice um, in real time, real technical screens. Uh, The the amount of free and paid resources out there is overwhelming. (laughs) Uh, I guess on the, Topic of commoditizing the marketplace of software engineering, what are certain specific fields that you see taking longer to be commoditized? Within
1: software engineering or just more
0: generally? Within within software engineering, yeah.
1: I would say it's not that the fields actually are commoditized, because even if you are a highly trained Java specialist, you're going into work every day and you're producing works of art. And you're producing code in a way that other people would not produce it. You're communicating with other people in a way that others would not communicate. You're designing specs that would not be designed by anybody else. And so I, I don't really see engineers as being commodities other than that they sometimes get convinced that they're commodities. Because engineering is just too – it's too complicated. Gotcha. It's too complicated to be uh, uh, actually like, seriously commoditized anytime soon.
0: Well, I guess to give you an example of what I'm thinking of, if you look at online labor marketplaces like Upwork.com uh, or Fiverr, there's discrepancies in prices for different skills. Uh, so, for example, if you want to pay a contractor hourly to do data science work, it might be at a different rate than you might pay somebody to make a marketing landing page with a lead form on it. Um, are there? I, you've, you've obviously covered distributed systems as a topic that comes up frequently among guests on your podcast. Uh, machine learning and TensorFlow and cryptocurrencies are topics that come up frequently on your podcast, but are there... I'm not saying that these these uh, professions are commoditized yet, but are there ones that you see being more impervious to being commoditized job market-wise? I don't really know. I, I wouldn't have expected that
1: poker would have gotten automated so quickly, but that has happened. I know that there was a talk that Jeff Dean gave recently about automating Oh, something in databases, like something about database indexing. I think like a trained, well, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to butcher it, but anyway um, something that I think it was something that used to had to have to be done by hand uh, got automated in database. Actually, no, that's not right. I think it was just a machine learned indexing system was better than a B tree or something like that. I'm, I don't know databases very well. Um, sure. Sure. sure.
0: No. This is uh, definitely a a job title that is in danger of being commoditized as the DBA, our uh, database administrator, who in the long history of databases, aka maybe 40 years, uh, there's been a lot of work and human labor put into optimizing how data is stored for different Query patterns. So I think I think what Jeff Dean might have been talking about recently is how, um, based on the queries that people make to a database, the database can automatically build, create the indexes um, without human intervention to best serve the types of queries that the database is seeing. So you don't you don't need to have anyone manually fiddling around to see oh. There's queries that are touching the jobs page or the jobs table.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, we Could should probably create an index on the jobs table. Um, that's something totally. Uh, yeah, DBAs are definitely something, an area of the of the software engineering job market that are ripe for some form of commoditization. Uh, one of the, one of the things I I've been meaning to ask you about when it comes to the job market is uh, the concept of okay, you want to, you don't want to be commoditized in your career, um, yet to work on things of scale, you either kind of need to work at a company that has scale in some form. Maybe that's a Google with, you know, uh, market share of search engines at 95%, um, or even lesser, lesser folks out there who have large data sets, um, to avoid being commoditized and building products, um, I mean, you've done so yourself with your podcasts, but for software engineers who might be making software products, um, how can people avoid? I, I this is a very <laughs> this is a very uh, open question, but how can people avoid commoditization when building software against uh, third-party APIs that they might not have much ownership over? Well, I mean, feel free to punt on this question. Let me just be clear about what I mean by this whole
1: commodity thing. Uh, I just think that people should assume a mentality that they are different than everybody else and that they the products that they are capable of making are differentiated and the the ideas that they are capable of having are differentiated and so they should look to find a course through the world of software engineering that does not pigeonhole them as something that is easily describable that is easily commodifiable like commodities are fungible you can switch out one ear of corn for another and sell it at the same futures price um you do you don't want to be there you want to be differentiated uh and so i mean this has worked for me like i don't I, I guess i can't speak for everybody everybody else but like what worked for me is a random walk down the street with lots of different avenues of software engineering to explore including podcasting um you know i i tried out so many different things i've been actually publishing some some of the side projects that i've worked on in the past that have gone absolutely nowhere on uh, on softwaredaily.com which is our community of software engineers who are building some different projects um but my, like i just i've done so many projects that have gone nowhere that have seen no attention. And I think that's, it's such a useful exercise, Uh, at least for me, it's been because I tried all these different things. I got a sense of what worked and actually I got a sense of what did not work, but I knew from, from hearing other ideas that there is a, there is a possibility that things do work out eventually. So I kept trying things and then found something that worked for me. And I think that's what other people, could do. If they want to avoid the fungibility of their career, is just keep trying different stuff.
0: Totally. To bring this full circle, this is in a way putting yourself in a position of risk exposure by working on this stuff and sinking your time into this stuff, yeah. into these projects that may or may not work out and often don't work out, but in any case you're by trying exposing yourself to positive upside risk like yeah it may work <laughs> and even if it didn't work the next time you go to try something out you have a better sense uh, your sense of risk is better calibrated uh, and to by the way sure. and
1: by the way that upside is uncapped generally and the downside is is capped at the amount of time that you spend or the amount of money that you spend on the project totally I think If I can just plug one thing, uh, we have an open source community called Software Daily that if people are looking for an open source project to work on, it's a community of people that are working on software that originated around Software Engineering Daily. So if you want to learn more about it, you can just go to softwaredaily.com.
0: Awesome. Happy to include a backlink uh, in the show notes for our audience that's just listening. Cool. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Well, thank you, Max. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer Podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Jeff and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. The stranger there among them had a big iron on his hip, big iron on his hip.